Project Lawful aka Plane Crash by Yarwain aka Eliezer Yudkowski and Lintamande. Thread 4, Project Lawful and Their Oblivious Boyfriend. Episode 87. He suspects us, says Gregoria. Yep. So we're going to have to learn really fast and be cleverer than him. And we don't have to win forever, just long enough that we have the law fragments we need to rederive the rest and the metallurgy and heredity theory to make Cheliacs rich and make the project look worthwhile while we set about the harder work of reinventing what we haven't got. She sounds substantially more confident than she feels. Dis thinks we're on the right track. No one even makes a face at Carissa casually making claims about what Dis thinks at this point. I'm still trying to grasp this at all. But I think we need to be keeping track of the way everything must look to Keltum inside the world where everything is a conspiracy. We need a list of things like Sivar going to the bathroom for a while right after Keltham mentioned the conspiracy and that Yaisa and I were told to distract him. And Ioni asking about the birds where Keltham would then suspect the world is maybe much larger. And then I think maybe that exact part is actually a victory for us, because we have to make sure that the list never starts making too much sense to him. But we have to know what the list looks like, because it's how Keltham is seeing things. The fact that some girls enjoy pain during sex is on the list. For him, he thinks that doesn't make any sense from a heredity perspective, but makes perfect sense if a conspiracy were trying to fool him. Why doesn't it make any sense from a heredity perspective, says Tonya. Probably girls who bear up all right as slaves have more kids than those who don't. I did actually say that to him, and yet... Can we lean on that, put his attention there, send him mixed signals, so that when that finally gets the answer we want, he won't have been paying attention to other things? Actually, I'm not sure it's the right move. I suspect Keltham's problem hash seven is a key to the game between Dath Ilani. We're controlling what he sees, and somehow that won't be able to affect him, I think, because of whatever law fragment is in Hash 7. If we're avoiding lies, then I shouldn't work with anyone from the holding cell on it. But I request Ione, Pilar, Peranza, Gregoria, and Tonya all with me, and trying to figure out Hash 7 as soon as possible so we can plan using it. And I request more foxes cunning and Owl's wisdom while we work on it. Granted. And I'll see about your headband, though it'll probably require talking with the Grand High Priestess. The Grand High Priestess thinks there's a thing Keltham would understand at once, but which is dangerous to put to him, about what it is like for Asmodeus to try to direct us mortals, about what kinds of actions that we take are easy for him to steer and which are hard. If you can figure out what she means by that she'll get you your headband, the only reason she doesn't give more people headbands, I think, is that there's something about mortals where being smarter doesn't reliably make us more useful, and it's a law fragment. It's got to be. I request additional information on all of that. Also, I don't know prices for wisdom headbands. If wisdom is cheaper, then maybe I can get by with a plus four wisdom headband and a lot of foxes' cunnings. Message. Sivar. Do you actually want anyone besides myself and Pilar working with Asmodia on this? The others may explode. I'd worry about Asmodia exploding, but she's obviously one of the different girls now. I'm going to talk to everyone about Hell tonight, and then I'll have a better sense who is an explosion risk. If we're allowed to know things now, why are you in charge? 
says Merit Sull. When I went to sell my soul, my devil conveyed that it was the will of Asmodeus, as translated down through hell, that I not sell my soul this day, but be permitted to participate in the project and other matters as if I had, and that if I served well in this world I'd be raised high in it and be among the most treasured possessions of Asmodeus in the next. I tried again later to sell my soul for three wishes and ten pounds of spell silver and permanent arcane sight and tongues and the devil said he'd have to ask his superiors, and then came back and said not yet, but was I willing to commit to selling at that price later? So I don't know exactly what's up, but I have a lot of license with hell right now, and probably will right up until I fail. And I'm likelier to fail if I don't have all of you guys on board, so I will be doing my best to offer appropriately massive bribes for doing a good job here, which is one of the things we're going to talk about tonight. Also, the outfits are because the devil also said I should be indulged as if I was the heiress to a county, though Abrogale says I can't actually have a county unless I succeed. We'll go over this all in more detail tonight. Merrickcell is speechless. She doesn't ask if Sivar knows the price on her own lost soul in the markets of Dis. Because Asmodia already knows. She can guess by now that Adath Ilani would figure that out immediately. And therefore she knows the answer even though she hasn't finished thinking through why. That's why her first owner is dead. You can't just kill a contract devil and take their souls. Obviously, they go by testaments. But with Asmodia's soul price running up past the wish level... Something happened to him. Somebody challenged him over it. Who knows what happens when prices get that high? How strange. How strange that she can still be this angry. She's not planning to let them actually have and keep and use her soul. In reality, it's worthless, and somebody will pay a vast sum for her soul and gain nothing. You'd think that should be vengeance enough. And yet, somehow... Asmodia is still seethingly angry on a level where keeping her face passive is taking everything she has. Do you know if our own souls are being traded around for prices like that now? Peranza says. She feels numb. Not prices that high. There's no direct divine intervention over you all. But I suspect a lot more than you were paid, yes. If I were you, I'd be mad about it. It's not how Keltham would have done it. He'd have split the gains from trade. But it's also still very possible to leverage for your own benefit. Because, do you think you'd be worth any more to hell than an ordinary soul after being put through the ordinary course of hell? I don't know. Very much about hell at all, Peranza says. I mean, I'll get there when I get there. Message to Sevar Asmodia doesn't try to keep the seething hatred out of her whisper if it's the sort of thing you can hear in a whisper. I suggest that new members of the project should be informed of this, before they sell their souls, and in exchange for tipping them off, we should get half of the spell silver they get, and that spell silver should be distributed among project members who have already sold their souls. Acknowledged. I can't make hell fair, but I can and will make you rich, Asmodia. I think that hell wants us badly, but wants us precisely for qualities that it doesn't know how to inculcate, probably because of some god agreements that restrict what greater devils can tell lesser ones. Therefore, as long as we are succeeding, we have affordance and leverage to figure out how the formation of evil doth, Ilanis, 
ought to work in hell. This is one of the things we're going to discuss tonight. You've spent your whole lives not allowed to think very hard about hell, and now we find ourselves practically assigned to change it. You may think about that this afternoon and evening, but if you notice yourself running into a blind wall of panic, then wait for tonight, where I have some ideas for how we can approach this. Why did Asmodeus pick you to not sell your soul? says Meritzel stubbornly. No one knows that or has any way to find out. I'm hoping it's because he noticed that I'm the right amount of a heretic to stay loyal to him while I figure out how to build space in it for Dothalanis and all the things they need and want. They won't give you a fucking thing, Savar, because you're not willing to go to Abaddon rather than let hell fuck you over. She hadn't meant that as a message for Savar. It is, of course, up to security whether they will choose to pass it on anyways. On a totally separate topic, if Keltham is looking to try romances with people who aren't Savar, does Asmodia have possession? Or Pilar? Because if not, I should do it, and I imagine that Savar wants to talk with me before then. Not yet on Pilar. We're holding her out until he manages to be slightly less into consent. Asmodia, do you want to pursue Keltham? He hasn't indicated yet that he wants to pursue me and said he needed time to think it over. Should she be briefing the others present about any other aspects of things? I want Keltham and am not a heretic, Meritzel says with a glare at Ione. And I appreciate that about you. And it's possible that the outcome of the conversation with Ione is that I don't trust her enough, or that I think it'd be salutary for Keltham's next romantic interaction to be with someone who isn't faking anything. But if in Alter Cheliax Ione'd totally go after him, then by default we do that. We have to adhere really closely to what we'd do in Alter Cheliax if we're going to stand a chance. Does Keltham actually want girls who don't have incredibly interesting backgrounds? I mean... I assume that's why he asked the question. I wasn't planning to not seduce Keltham ever at all, says Peranza. Keltham asked that question to verify his tropes theory, which will be discussed at briefing tonight. He does want other girls, or at least he might. Is there any reason that we shouldn't just have everyone who's currently interested competing to seduce him at dinner tonight, says Paxty, who feels that she was originally promised this scenario when she agreed to work on Project Lawful. Take a step back and think very carefully if that is what would happen in Alter Cheliax, and if it is, then yes, you may. I'm pretty sure that's exactly what would happen in Alter Cheliax, says Meritzel. I'm not. We were originally recruited to do that for reasons having to do with the real Cheliax. We have to figure this out step by step. What happened in the Alter Cheliax instead? When they recruited us here, what instructions we got in Alter Cheliax, and then we need to write it down, so everybody is living in the same Alter Cheliax about it, and we have to put up a huge wall somewhere with all of this written down. Keltham asked me earlier what kind of screening questions we'd gotten before coming here, and I had to make something up, and that needs to be on there. I needed to make up an answer quickly, and I bet security didn't copy everyone else as soon as I said it which means that Keltham could have come up to Paxty and asked her to answer immediately what the screening questions were like, and he could have caught us right there before security had time to fill her in. Don't you get it? We're playing this game against a real Dothilani. The only reason we're not already out is that Keltham isn't oriented enough to start playing for real. Ask the Grand High Priestess now about Asmodia's headband, says Carissa. 
And yes, that's the answer I was about to give. Alter Chiliacs has to be complete. It has to have every detail for the same reasons it had to be based on Taldor in the first place. Figure out your experience of every day up to this point, and then figure out if you'd flirt with Keltham. So, thinking back, I now suspect I significantly fucked up the original things I said to Keltham, back when I was trying to make sure Lord Nethys didn't destroy my soul for not even trying to carry out his mission. I need to figure out what Alter Ione was thinking in Alter Cheliacs when she said everything she did, and what that implies about whether Alter Ione wants to make another try at Keltham, and when. A security transcript of that conversation might be helpful. Is Asmodia in charge of this now? You know what, for the time being, yes. I request transcripts of literally everything that's been said to Keltham or by him that I wasn't there for. I don't know if I'll be able to finish that before my ring of sustenance kicks in, but with your permission, I plan on not taking any downtime today or tonight, and telling Keltham I didn't feel like I needed downtime today if he asks. No, wait. Would that be too much less likely in ordinary... Well, I'll figure it out. Pending headband. I'm going to try to work out answers unenhanced, and then get enhanced at the end to review and correct everything. The owl's wisdom is important for this. Not just the fox's cunning. I don't know why yet, but it is. So, the number of those available to me is the number of times per day I can figure out significant parts of the game or make complicated decisions in it. Unless otherwise instructed... I think my current priority is figuring out Alter Cheliax's seduction mission parameters before dinner. Sevar, you know what Alter Cheliax is supposed to be, and why, to make it acceptable to Kelthim. That's not a part of this, I understand, so I think you can't just go off and leave me to it. After that, we can figure out what Alterione was thinking. I'm not looking forwards to that, but accept it as my job. Then, if Alterione is still making a run on Keltham, Ione can talk to Savar about that. Message. Savar. If we're also trying to not have Keltham end up believing in the patterns, I can't do any part of my job without your supervision until I know everything you do about them. I'll be here with you advising. The place we want Alter Cheliax to be is the best place in Golarion for Keltham to start developing civilization, a place that's not very far along the road to law but is trying and has already improved on a decade ago when we were Taldor. And also, Keltham's specifically paranoid of the girls being ordered into his bed, so Cheliax has made particular strides in not doing that, insofar as it's compatible with things people have already said. Message. I'll brief you on tropes when we're alone. Keltham is reasonably ecstatic about being a proper self-powered spellcaster instead of a divine surrogate spellcaster. Keltham did not, of course, cast his silent image right away. Instead, he deliberately arrives slightly late to dinner, hoping everyone will be there already and he won't have to await any stragglers. He doesn't want to delay between arriving and showing this off, nay, not even for food. This is going to be too awesome if it works. Is everybody here in the dining hall yet? Are they? Are they? Yep. They have worked out what flirting will occur in Alter Cheliax and are resolving informal bets on what'll be for dinner. It's fish. Betting is an encouraging sign, too. Not literally all virtue begins from betting on things, but yes, quite a lot, as the proverb goes. Guess who's not just a laundry wizard anymore? Everyone get within a 20-foot radius of me. Turn off all the lights if that helps. 
I'm going to show you a silent image of Dathi Lan for as long as I can maintain concentration. Unless, of course, this spell just completely fizzles. It's my first time. Why does she feel terrified? They gather around. Behold wizardry. Keltham isn't sure if he'll be able to do things like animation or changing between entirely different images while he holds concentration. So start out strong. How about if they're surrounded by full blackness? He won't try for stars yet. Just the silent image of black walls around them to screen out light. And above them, within the resulting darkness, is... Dath Ilan. Nighttime, so soft traceries on the continents are glowing red, with a few spots of whiter light for cities that never sleep and have been allocated space far away from all telescopes. Oohs and ahs. What Galarian will be if they succeed. If she succeeds, because they'll fail if she does. Can he possibly add the distant stars too, via imagining that the edges of his illusion are walls emitting appropriately incoming photons, as should look right to him from inside? That's simpler than a looming skyscraper will be. He doesn't need to worry about parallax. Yep. It feels a little closer to how the gods see Galerion. Part of something much, much vaster. He's not sure he can get the parallax right on distant skyscrapers just yet. He can try that after, if he can maintain concentration. So now that the starfield apparently works, let's start zooming out. Not all Dathilani, but more than half, know how to find their way back to Dathilan, if they get lost somewhere inside their galaxy with an extremely fast FTL spaceship. And they know how to find their way back to the local galaxy if they're stranded on a larger scale than that. It's just a cool thing to know how to do. Keltham has seen enough zoom-out videos for his illusion of it to be realistic, if the illusion makes it look realistic to him. He'll run it at a speed where it takes him about two minutes to get to the local visible volume. How do they know? Meritzel whispers very, very quietly, half to herself. Well, obviously, as soon as you could, you'd send your civilization off into the stars. Because you could. Because there could be civilization there, too. Otolmans does not recognize any of that. And while parts of it have reasonable and consistent implied mechanics, parts of it do not. And how would a bunch of mortals get a view of things on that scale if they can't catch and back-infer from incoming photons, intercepted well above the atmosphere like she can? Also, that is extremely large for a universe. It keeps on zooming out. Otolmans is glad she is not the one who has to maintain all that. Why is so much of it missing? That's not good. Wait, is that supposed to be the cosmic microwave background? The cosmic microwave background does not look like that. A universe would need to grow very oddly for a cosmic microwave background to end up looking like that. This person comes from a very broken universe, and its version of Otolmans is either dead or very sad, and none of this is making Otolmans any less worried. Good enough to look realistic to Keltham is perhaps not quite realistic. Those slices are missing, Keltham says once the image stops at the end the famous hourglass shape of what's visible, good he's able to maintain concentration while talking. Because they're obscured by the galaxy around Dathilan, where a galaxy is a spiral structure of stars. The galaxy that Dathilan is inside blocks our view out. We can't see through our galaxy to the side directions, only out of the top and bottom, if we're trying to see something very, very far away. So this is all of the universe that we can see using telescopes in orbit. 
high enough up to be far, far out of the atmosphere that makes distant stars hard to see from the ground. Are we one of those stars? Meritasil says, just as quietly, not sure at all if Keltham was answering her earlier or just talking. Galarian's son? Probably not. I'll explain later. Don't want to lose concentration. Keltham starts the zoom in, now, going faster than on the zoom out. As the view goes past the fourth planet, Keltham says, This is the furthest that people from civilization have ever traveled and survived. Certain others will be picked up eventually. The odds on saving their true lives are not 97%, but they are over 50%, and in a planet of a billion people, somebody will think that's an acceptable risk. The return journey past the moon shows, in just a tiny glimpse, a lit section in darkness. The moon colony. When the view reaches Dathilan, it shows the sun side, and the view dives in, as the video usually does, to the city of default. You can see this particular city starting well above the atmosphere, though you wouldn't see much detail yet that from that height, even if this illusion was finer than a silent image can be. She doesn't know what Dis would look like from the air. Probably it'd be cool. Probably it wouldn't be that cool. They're now closer to the ground, going slower. Things don't look far away, just small, and there's no sense of scale. There's an island of metal blocks in the centre of the image, and then beyond that some kind of grid laid on the ground. But you can't see the fine details of what's inside the grid. The image is zooming in on the metal blocks in the centre. Maybe those tiny reflective rectangles now visible on the huge metal blocks are glass windows. If that's true, these metal buildings are something like a hundred storeys tall. Well, this makes sense, because wizards build tall towers, and Nefredi Klopati specifically made a point of building hers slightly taller than the Black Dome. Never mind how impossible that was. And probably a richer civilization would be full of individual people having a tower measuring contest, and the results would be very tall. The image seems to be favoring one particular huge metal building. It goes to one of the windows. They're inside somebody's house, in what seems like a very nice, very large, elegantly decorated office. It's lit by multiple brilliant sconces to something approaching the light of a sunny day. Within, what's probably meant to be Keltham, seen from behind, is sitting in a chair. It's probably a chair. And doing something weird with his fingers to something that isn't going to make much more sense. If you've never seen a cording keyboard mouse before, in front of him is a flat thingy. Then the flat thingy shows Dath Ilan, seen from space, and starts zooming out. Computer. Connected to all the rest of civilization, talk to somebody on the other side of the world, read most books in existence. Carissa feels like she is being seduced. But seduced to what? This is already what she's trying to build. And betraying Cheliax wouldn't build it, just prove to hell that it is not compatible with Asmodeus's ultimate victory. The view shifts away from Keltum in his chair, goes through a doorway, down a hallway with other open doorways. They get a glimpse of Keltham's library his random treasures room, his bathroom larger than many townsfolk's entire homes, complete with vast bathtub, his bedroom, that's probably a bed. One rather incomprehensible and slightly disturbing glimpse of a Dathalani cuddle room, a room clearly meant for receiving guests. My house module. It's relatively large for somebody my age, by Dathalani standards. But I spent less money on my hobbies than most people. It took 67 days per year out of my labor to rent the module plus 21 days per year for the location in default. 
I considered it worth it to not have to figure out how to fit all my stuff and activities into anywhere smaller. Keltham loses it. Just the image, to be clear. He's not breaking down in tears. His voice only slightly cracked there. How long do you think it'll take from here? Hundred years? Two hundred? Or maybe fifty if you go faster once you get going, because of all the things you can do with magic on top of everything we could do without it. Ione doesn't have any approved dialogue that matches what she's feeling right now, so she just quietly goes over to where Keltham is standing and sits down next to his feet. She'll get approval on some of her changed plans later. No, there's one thing that Alterione absolutely says. If she doesn't say it, that's suspicious. When you leave Galarian, I want to go with you. Noted. We can talk about that later sometime. Carissa suppresses a flicker of annoyance with Ione, notices she's been doing that a lot lately, contemplates how much of that annoyance is jealousy, and decides to figure this out later, maybe with Owl's wisdom up. Let's do it in 40, she says. While taking oath days off at least once a month, says Gregoria, since apparently there's a deficit of people who'll say that sort of thing. It's not like digging ditches. It doesn't necessarily go faster as you work longer hours or take fewer days off, any more than you can save time in the long run by not eating. Spoken by someone who's had all info about rings of sustenance carefully removed from his environment. Speaking of which, I should get some food. And if they can tell he's also taking a moment to recover, good on their inferential capacities. They get food themselves and give him a minute. Once he looks slightly recovered, Carissa messages him. The girls took what you said earlier to mean they should all attempt to seduce you now. So if you don't like that, you should say so in words before they get to it. And if you do like it, well, good luck. Thank you for the warning, Keltham mouths back. It now seems like much less of a panic situation than when he first realized he was trapped with a horde of amorous women in the villa library. Partially, it's that he's not in like some totally other dimension. Well, he still is, but not quite so recently. And partially, it's that he now knows any of them at all. And that he understands better what he might owe in return, not something unspoken that he won't be able to repay. And that the thought of his having that much mating value is no longer so shocking and unconsidered. And maybe it's even that he feels somehow a little more comfortable in his own skin, now that he's ever hurt Carissa in bed. He'll get his food, then, and sit down among the amorous horde of women bent on mating with him. Every man has to face them eventually. This is wisdom. Carissa will flash him an amused smile that she has absolutely no idea about the sincerity level of, and sit across the room where she can watch the mess in peace. We'll go ahead and flirt with him, then. He awaits their lures. The Queen of Cheliac stands in a high tower of her palace, one that lets her gaze over the city of Agorian surrounding it. A new city, but a thriving one. The sun is setting, but there will yet be people in the streets when it is gone. Taverns and whorehouses open at night, open always. There are enough souls about the palace with rings of sustenance to promote Agorian to the ranks of cities that know no rest. I see it, says Abragal Thrun, letting the exultation that she feels fill her voice unhindered by concealment, only moderately enhanced by splendor. I see Asmodeus's plan. Nothing good has ever happened to me after hearing those words. I guessed you would say that, Most High. Indeed, that is why I spoke so. Did I manage to hit on anyone's exact wording? Yes. 
I assume you have some purpose in bidding me here, other than amusing yourself wasting the time of your senior partner's more valuable slaves. I think I do see it, though. Asmodeus's plan. But I will not work around the edges of my current instructions in order to fulfill it better. Oh, good, Aspexia says dryly. What are you going to start doing differently, then? Tell me of it and how very predictable it would be to our Lord. I would devote additional resources to one of our current operations in a not especially creative fashion. Would that suit you? I feel a spark of hope that it will do less harm. Somebody in all Cheliacs must try to have any notion of the course of greater events. That person is, of course, me. Asmodeus would not have forged an infernal crown so mighty if it never served him for its wearer to think. The time for such cleverness is when you are about plots and projects that you originated yourself, or else perhaps when events are happening that our Lord could not have predicted, when his plans are clearly beginning to go astray. But tell the Most High of her Lord's brilliant plot, then, that you are brilliant enough to perceive yourself. Plot? Hardly. It is a plan spanning thousands of years and perhaps implicit since the creation of the world. Ah, one of those. Hell is the destruction of hope. Consider Aspexia. It is said in many places and many books that Abadar, god of wealth and trade, and Asmodeus, god of slavery and tyranny, are on friendly terms. Why? Because Asmodeus is a god of compacts? He does not promote compacts well-suited to trade, nor the increase of wealth. When we force a chelish soul to sign with a devil, they are not thus enriched as Abadar sees it. Because Asmodeus is prince of law, let Abadar be on much friendlier terms with Iomedai then, whose laws would seem more suited to her peasants accumulating gold. Consider. Asmodeus would have us build schools and roads. He has sent us resources out of hell for it. Of course his slaves become more valuable thereby, more useful. But consider. Is that usually Asmodeus's way with his slaves? We are resources to him, yes, but the worshippers of other gods are equally resources to them. And yet among the never-mortal gods, only Abadar also troubles himself to see so much to their industry. Consider. Evil can force its people to work by whip until in mortal lands they drop, or in hell forever. A few elites of good may strive, but the people of good are lazy. Hell is more industrious than heaven, and Axis can scarcely be bothered to spare a droplet of attention from their amusements. Then why has our Lord not already won? Because there were balances of power set in the beginning of things. The game of gods is one that can hardly have any winner, perhaps a few losers at best. It is akin to a game where players all have heaps of stones and take turns removing one stone from some other player's heap. Should any player get ahead, the other players combine more against them. If, from the beginning of things, Asmodeus had seemed more set to win, more alliances would have been made against him, and more compromises forced. Exactly. And one of those compromises is that the devils in hell cannot be told what the outsiders of other outer planes are told by their own masters. It is a key compromise that partially negates the advantage of hell's industriousness. And if that compromise is itself compromised, in a world of shattered prophecy, hell's road to victory then opens. Not only in Galarian, in all the realms Asmodeus contests, 
for devils are not limited to one realm as almost all mortals are. We didn't understand where his plan was going before because we had not seen Keltham, but seeing Keltham and hearing of his civilization, it becomes clear. This is the common interest that Asmodeus has with Abadar, that in a world with enough schools and roads, there can be made devils who are not ignorant, who are instructed here in the law that our Lord cannot tell them, working with industriousness and lawful accord after death as in life, to transform petitioner after petitioner into higher devils. From hell then shall pour out armies that no other realm can withstand. This is why our Lord slew Aridon, Aspexia. This is why it was worth it to him to slay Aridon, when the cost was prophecy-shattering, which, as you have observed to me, now advantages gods who were once mortal in predicting the mortal realm. Asmodeus did not slay Aridon to save this one realm of Galarian from some little once mortal's temporary dominion. Shattering prophecy in Galarian makes Hell's victory possible in all of the realms. For if prophecy still operated here, not only the gods of this realm but those of others might have combined their forces against him before it was too late. We are in the beginning of our Lord's endgame. Or, even if all your other cleverness is not just dancing upon air, in the beginning of one more moderate victory that will mildly improve our Lord's position, after taking into account how other gods then react and league themselves more against him, and yet not trouble themselves to cancel his new advantages perfectly. Among the many common failures of mortals, thinking they can see our Lord's plans, is that they tend to imagine plans much larger and with more flattering roles for themselves than our Lord essays to move his pawns for on almost any real occasion. Perhaps, and yet also perhaps not. Consider the events around us. This is no ordinary occasion. Asmodeus is intervening over and over and over. Our Lord has finally moved against Zon Kuthon, now sealed, and the other gods yielded to him in the matter. Otolmens herself makes bargains visibly to his favor. Asmodeus's triumph in Galarian is become predictable enough that Caden Kalian has made common cause with him, god of good that Caden Kalian may be in name, in exchange perhaps for more revels and fornication in the worlds of the new lawful evil, along with a little solicitousness towards children, turning openly against Yomede along the way. Nethys is backing Project Lawful for the spread of knowledge, Irori for the perfecting of souls and law. Abadar might prefer his cleric elsewhere, but he has not withdrawn his powers from Keltham. Hell's victory is at hand. We may even live to see it in Galarian. I must have missed the clarifications from Hell notifying us of an alliance so momentous and so straightforward when they troubled to instruct us regarding the children at all. Why pay extra to tell me what I am clearly capable of figuring out for myself if I bother to exercise a little wit? Abrogale, tell me you are amusing yourself at my expense, and not actually being this incorrigible to our lord. I am of course not certain of any such conjectures. But I can see the possibility, nor is anything about it surely wrong. And if those are perhaps not the exact details, something vast seems to be latent in the air. Some endgame is beginning, I think. And perhaps not only the endgame of Galarian alone and our Lord does seem to be at the center, and even, we may hope, in control. What would you of me, Aspexia? 
having seen this much possibility. Would you that I do nothing? I would have us all do as our Lord instructed, and not leap to greater excesses of zealousness when it seems our Lord could easily have instructed more zeal if it were wished. Also, if there are tropes about, you are baiting them. I have gone to great lengths to be free of tropes, and had sincerely hoped never to hear of them again. Hell is the destruction of hope. I presume you've read the most recent reports out of Project Lawful, regarding the asexual and her absent superpowers, to say nothing of the hidden cleric who could only be detected by one who would not reveal the truth to Keltham and Savar. We must at this point regard tropes as simple fact. Then are we to never seek any victory for Asmodeus, fearing ourselves to invoke the wrath of tropes if we dare try? Why not sign Cheliax over to the rulership of these tropes, then if they and not our lord now command us? The Grand High Priestess of Asmodeus is feeling very tired right now. She did not need an entirely new class of pseudo-divine entity forces to worry about either. But she is not going to pretend they don't exist. I know that you have little taste for romance novels, even amid the chaos of your ascension. I do recall hearing the report that you had all chelish authors of them put to creative deaths by their own lovers when possible. But in this case, that is not precisely true. As a young girl, I tried several such and found them wanting. After I ascended, yes, all of those authors met appropriately romantic fates of my own design. But I gave new instructions to new officers. After and in my first years personally checked all synopses to pass final word on their approval. Today, I admit, I have less care for such matters and so less attention. But every year or two I deign to have some author of seemingly good repute brought before me to kneel in wait while I read their latest work, and the results are running half and half between authors enriched and authors incinerated. On the whole, there has been a vast improvement since my reign's beginning if I do say so myself, though much about the temper of literate chelish women remains to be perfected. What of it? Aspexia Rugaton thinks to herself that she really should monitor more closely every single thing that Abrogale Thrune II ever gets up to. It's just that the dark water in that well seems to have no end. Turn your over-cleverness to this, then. How is Hell's victory over all the realms to be made the appropriate ending of a romance novel? For Keltham did seem to think, and I would not assume him wrong, that the tropes stood above all gods, and if those could be invoked about Hell's victory over all realms, I might begin to hope for it myself. Hmm. I admit, I do not at all want to consider that question, but if I must, then I must. Corrupting Keltham would seem to be the obvious key. The story ends with him and his Carissa finally of one accord on the matter, watching Cheliax's victory and Asmodeus's ultimate victory unfold as if it were their own. Or, better yet, we should try to make Carissa rather than Keltham be the character of greater importance. Indeed, much of that work I have already done, without my even realizing what I was about. That is encouraging. And if Carissa is the protagonist that yields a thousand useful romantic possibilities, 
such as her breaking Keltham with the witness of what he has done and so finally remaking her man to her own satisfaction. Perhaps that is how a modern Chelish romance novel would end. What has Abrogale done? Aspexia needs to go read one of those novels in all haste. How do we make Hell's Victory be a fitting ending, the only fitting ending, of a Dathilani romance novel, one produced and approved by Keltham Civilization? Hmm. Hmm. That does seem more difficult. If Keltham had failed tragically enough, out of his own deeper fault, out of his selfishness, out of his sexuality, as Doth Elan deems faults in him, then would a lawful good writer out of Doth Elan compose an ending that Doth Elan thought the most terrible possible to show the consequence? Why am I now considering requisitioning for myself a tragical romance novel written by the most intelligent, lawful good author who has ever written one? How have I come to this? By what road have I come here? Somewhere we went astray along the way. You speak as if it could possibly be only the one misstep. Ask, rather, whether we ever stepped anywhere rightly. A thought, then. Suppose we are to... Wait. I believe on reflection that I should say no more. I should not speak any of my plans or thoughts on the subject aloud. I have not already lost Hell's victory thereby, I think but I cannot speak out loud of how victory is to be achieved, and especially not while speaking with the Most High in a tower overlooking my city's sunset. Is that actually necessary? As Aspexia cannot but admit the answer is that she doesn't know either, the Queen is, of course, right in her strategy. As you say, I did have one idea about that romantic tragedy myself, but I suppose I can delay to have that discussion in a plainer chamber. Wiser still would be for you to write it to me, and have it delivered not by your own person. No, I am too much looking forwards to seeing the look on your face. But it could be written down for you to read if you think that will help. The Queen looks more than slightly weary herself. We should end this discussion here then on that ominous note. Aspexia frowns. Is there anything particularly dramatic I should do in the way of departing? You're making it less dramatic with every word you speak. Just go. As her infernal majestrix wills, so it must be done in the end. The Most High departs without further word. Just as planned. Caden Kalian doesn't know why Nethys insisted on Caden thinking that to himself. If this meeting went approximately according to any of scenarios one, four for it. Caden Kalian does not see how a private thought would have any further effect. And it did not, in fact, go precisely as planned. But it is not worth questioning Nethys about such a matter, else he starts going on about orthogonal angles and things that make you more real when they look at you and anthropics. If you wish to support this AI reading and others like it, please visit patreon.com slash AI. Any help is appreciated. And thank you to executive producer John Doe 7776059.